Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Greg Soden. The figures that influence and shape our world often recede into history, and people may forget to learn from some of the lessons put forth by these once influential figures. Dag Hammarskjöld, former Secretary General of the United Nations, is one such figure who is revered in some parts of the world, but is quite overlooked in others. Dag Hammarskjöld served as Secretary General of the United Nations from 1953 until his tragic death in a suspicious plane crash in 1961. During those years, he saw the fledgling international organization through numerous crises with skill that made him a star on the international stage. As readers of his now-classic diary, Markings, are aware, Hammarskjöld understood political leadership as an honor calling for resourcefulness, humility, moral clarity, and spiritual reflection. The life of Hammerschold is under discussion on this episode of Classical Ideas, and my return guest is Dr. Roger Lipsy. Lipsy is a biographer, art historian, editor, and translator. He is the author of An Art of Our Own, The Spiritual in 20th Century Art, Angelic Mistakes, The Art of Thomas Merton, Gurdjieff Reconsidered, The Life, The Teachings, The Legacy, which Lipsy and I discussed on episode 94 of this podcast, and which is also the sixth most downloaded episode of all time of Classical Ideas. And today's topic for our conversation is his work on the life of Dog Hammerschold. He has written the biography Hammerschold, A Life, hailed as the definitive Dog Hammerschold biography, as well as his brand new handbook on the teachings of Hammerschold titled Politics and Conscience, Dog Hammerschold on the Art of Ethical Leadership, out now from Shambhala Publications. In this conversation, we discuss Hammerschold's life, his years as Secretary General of the United Nations, his spirituality, and the circumstances surrounding his mysterious death in 1961. I loved having Dr. Lipsy back on the show. You can reach me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas, and you can find links to Roger's books at Shambhala in the show notes. Without further delay, please enjoy this conversation on the book Politics and Conscience, Dag Hammarskjöld, on the Art of Ethical Leadership with Dr. Roger Lipsy. So you've been here before. We talked about uh, Gurdjieff um, last year in 2019, but if you could briefly reintroduce yourself uh, and your multitude of academic interests to the audience, that would be fantastic. Well, I... I did a, a doctoral dissertation in the history of art on a really outstanding figure named Ananda Kumaraswamy. 
He was an art historian. He was also an art philosopher. He was also a writer on society, on government, on religion. He was what they call a polymath. He had an enormous range. And I didn't realize it at the time that that range of his was going to influence me so that though I have written from time to time and very intensively about the history of art, um, there's a book called An Art of Our Own, The Spiritual in 20th Century Art. It's still much read by artists, though only published in 1988. Um, I didn't realize that Kumara Swami's example would um, really affect me. And so I've written much more broadly than I expected to when I set out to be a kind of narrow-minded art historian. Um, I've written a lot on Thomas Merton, the monk and author. Um, I've written about his art. I've written about his rather difficult relationship with his uh, with his abbot. Um, I've written about Gurdjieff, who was a great 20th century teacher. And, and then Hammerschild, who... Um, has been important to me ever since the mid-1960s. And in a way, I was just waiting to grow up enough to write about him. That took some decades, but the moment finally came when I knew I could and should. There are two Hammerschild books. One is a 700-page biography that I published in 2013, and the other is the book that's our main focus today, Politics and Conscience, the art of Doug Hammerschild on the art of ethical leadership. And that was published on February 26th, 2020, just two weeks before the lockdown across America. Um, and so it's not been, uh, it's not been noticed as much as it would have, I suppose, had we not all been um, struggling with this virus. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to promote a book when you can't go out to bookstores and promote it live in front of an actual audience. So I'm happy to help you in that regard to promote this book because I've been reading it and it is incredibly fascinating. And the thing that really inspires me about having you on the show is that you are interested in folks who I have had never heard of before. I had never been aware of Gurdjieff before we came across each other. I had, I had never uh, thought about Hammerschild before we came across each other. So you are providing a, a huge service to me personally as a learner. Um, so I appreciate your work in that regard as well. Um, and I'm curious how you first discovered the life of Hammerschild. You mentioned that it was um, some years back and that it took you a while to appreciate him. But what's the backstory for why you're so interested in him? Yeah. Well... You know, it looks as if I've written on different things and as if they're disconnected, but in fact, they're intimately connected. Um, ever since the very early 1960s, um, when I became very interested in the Gurdjieff material, the Gurdjieff teaching, there's a, a dominant idea in it of, of uh, a kind of balance between outward service and self-knowledge, an internal relationship that allows for a higher quality of outward service. And when Hammerschild's uh, private journal called Markings, as it was published in 1964 in English, when that was published, 
I read it and I realized that he was really an utterly outstanding embodiment of this dual focus of self-awareness or what people now call mindfulness. Mm. There wasn't that word at that time, but he was a, um, a vividly, um, seriously mindful individual. And he was of greatest service to the cause of peace and social justice and the economic welfare and human rights across the world. That struck me as truly my ideal, and I've never departed from that all through the 70s and 80s and 90s. Hammerschild remained my ideal. Um, I also, initially I was interested in markings in the private journal because it was the spiritual journal, it was the life story, and as a biographer, I'm um, automatically drawn to life stories. But um, as I began to, uh, as I matured, I realized that the rest of his uh, life, that the, the United Nations papers, that everything he had done as, as the UN leader in the years 1953 to 61 were just as important as markings. <clears throat> and so eventually, you know, a writer feels a kind of call, at least that's so for me. And I heard the call to write about Doug Hammarskjöld long ago. I'd written certain chapters about him in other books. But the, the call became very strong in around 2010 or so. And I got to work. And after I retired from my life as an employee in a, in a business, as a writer, I finally had the time to do it justice. And the result was a 700-page 700 700-page 700 biography, the first in 40 years. Now, let me say one more thing about why politics and conscience, which is a handbook of his thought and political thought and practice, why that exists. My sense was that the people I wished to reach with the Hammerschild biography, all 700 pages of it, uh, that I wasn't reaching enough of them. It was too big a book. The book was needed. After 40 years, how could there not be a major biography? Well, it is that. But I wanted to reach people, people of influence, people who have not so much time to read, but who might nonetheless care um, and I wanted to reach the the voter, the citizen, mm. just as much. I didn't want to necessarily reach an elite. I wanted to reach people who make this world take the shape it does, take the course it does. Um, and so I thought, all right, let's write a handbook. And it's not just a digest of the biography, far from it. It's an original piece of work. But there it is. It's 140 pages. It's an, um, probably quite easy to read. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking about this book as well. And what you just said about reaching important people, I was thinking how last night, how this book, if it were to go on like the Barack Obama summer reading list that he publishes every year, 
how much of an impact something like that would have. Um, you know what I mean? Getting it into the eyes of the right person who is willing to say, wow, I found this thing about this important historical figure um, that many people overlook, just how much that could explode this 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 slim volume that you've managed to uh, to put together so concisely. Um so I, I am I agree with you because I am also that kind of reader. I'm looking at many different books every single week, and having something this digestible is really just a treat, a thrill, if you will, for me as a reader. Um, but something else that springs to mind is how Hammerschold is overlooked. It, that's my impression because the last couple of um, weeks or so, I've been talking to a few friends of mine here and there. I've been like, oh, I'm reading this book about Dag Hammarskjöld. And they were like, who is Dag Hammarskjöld? So my impression, and these are smart people, many of whom have like PhDs and master's degrees and are unfamiliar with this man. Um, So my impression is that he's somewhat overlooked historically, especially in the United States. I had never heard of him until I noticed last year you were his biographer after our Gurdjieff episode. Do you get the impression that um, Hammarskjöld is overlooked here in this country and maybe why? Yeah, it's more than an impression, Greg. It's a it's a fact. Mm. <clears throat> when I wrote the 700-page biography, I was hoping to fill in that gap in knowledge. I was hoping that it would be effective across a, a reasonably broad um, uh, population of readers. Um, up to a point, that's true. Hammerschold is... Famous in Scandinavia, it goes without saying. He was a Swede. He won the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize posthumously um, after his assassination in an air crash. Um, and we'll talk about that. Uh, he's reasonably well known in parts of Europe, not, not everywhere. Um, in this country, you know... He's a very, very refined thinker and political practitioner. That'll be evident when people read this handbook. That kind of refinement asks for gee, a certain kind of reader. It's not for a big, bullheaded congressman. Mm. It's not going to interest that person. It is going to interest someone um, with curiosity and who a reflective person, someone for whom politics is public service. It's not self-service. And for that reader, it's perfect. But um, I'm something of a... Of course, he's famous at the UN. Right. I mean, at the UN, he's a founding figure. And to this day, the, some UN leaders ask themselves when they face problems, what would dog do? Mm. That's a classic question there. <laughs> but these are islands of knowledge of Hammerschild. And, you know, he's so important. He's such a fine teacher that I've wanted him to be much better known. Yeah, well, and it, I, I also would imagine that he was more well-known in the 50s and 60s. Like JK, JFK, you have him quoted in the book um, as saying that Hammerschel was, quote, the greatest statesman of our century. So he was quite well-revered at the time, wasn't he? Yeah, I wanted to confirm that for you. Um, after his death, which was in se- mid-September 1961, um, here's the way the New York Times 
editorialized. Um, how can the power of this irreplaceable man be analyzed? It rose from patience, from an inherited wisdom, from a profound experience, from the ability to detach himself from the deep tradition of his native land and to be, first of all, an international statesman. In an age of violence, he had gentleness. He never rose in a public meeting to say that he loved humanity, but he evidently did. What he did say was the same thing, that he loved justice. So that was the response of the New York Times and other media to his sudden death at the time. Uh, why haven't we continued to remember him? I think that's an open question. Wonderful. Well, we are remembering him here, which I love. Um, so Hammerschold was the Secretary General of the United Nations from 1953 to 1961. But I'm curious about a little bit about his career trajectory and life before he held that position. What was his life like leading up to this uh, this very visible public stage position that he held at the UN? Yeah. Uh, born in Sweden, educated in Sweden. Uh, his father was the prime minister of Sweden during a long part of World War I. Uh, his mother was a warmly Christian individual who would open their home every Tuesday evening, I think it was, to the whole cross-section of people, um, high and low, rich and poor, in their city of Uppsala, which is a university town. So Hammerschel was exposed early to international and national political table talk and to this warmth and receptivity of his mother. These were two very strongly informative influences. He was a star in his education. He just zoomed through educational level um, at, in, the, in, in high style. By the age of 30, he was an economist and lawyer and hired by the um, Swedish government in their civil service to work on some economic questions. And then, again, he just rose and rose in that capacity, and he was the head of the uh, Swedish Central Bank for throughout the years of World War II. He was part of the negotiating team that kept Sweden, which was putatively a neutral country, which spared it being uh, occupied by the Nazis. Um, but that was very, very difficult, and he was part of that team. Um, and then after the war, he was part of the team that allocated Marshall Plan aid. And that's when he came to the attention of international figures such as Anthony Eden and others as an outstanding person. Um, he also, um, so he rose into the Swedish government's cabinet in 1951, I think it was. And um, one would have said that he was just going to lead a kind of outstanding life that rather bored him at this point as a government official, maybe someday even a prime minister, who knows. And then what interrupted his life abruptly, almost without warning, was an invitation to become the Secretary General of the UN. He would have been, he was to be the second Secretary General. 
Um, so, uh, and he accepted that position as a matter of, of duty. He, he saw it as an opportunity for, for service, certainly as a career opportunity. Um, at the UN, you know, what you, you wanted to know, what is a secretary general? Yeah, yeah. I don't you know, a lot of people might not know, and I think it's worth discussing yeah, what his day-to-day duties were. Some people, well, he was uh, nominated and elected to that position, which is a six-year position. You have to be re-nominated or every six years. Um, because people thought that he would be a what they call a technocrat, that he would be a bureaucrat, that he would be apolitical, that he would let the big, the so-called great powers, Soviet Union, United States, Britain, France, China, though, that he would let the great powers kind of roam freely and do whatever the hell they wanted to do, and that he would simply obey whatever orders he was receiving from the General Assembly, one of the, the most important body of the UN, which was at the time about 67 member nations. Now it's 197. And also from the Security Council, uh, which holds a great deal of power in the UN. In fact, that didn't work out that way. They had no idea who they were hiring. They had hired a man of immense firmness, of deep um, Judeo-Christian values, of vast culture, um, of unlimited energy. During crises, people had the impression that he just didn't need to sleep. Um, of the keenest attention, he was the first mindful uh, political leader in the West. Mm. Uh, and at a time when the word mindful wasn't even in circulation. Sure. Well... <clears throat> So you're and new- the job. The job. Um, one of the jokes about the secretary general is that um, he, that some people expected him to be more secretary than general, <laughs> but it turned out that he was um, really more general than secretary. He moved slowly. He was wise. He was shrewd. He knew when he could move, but when and when he could not. Um, it's a strange uh, role in world affairs. It's a role beholden to the the uh, so-called permanent um, members of the Security Council, which are the US, UK, Britain, France, and today it's China, um, mainland China. Originally it was Taiwan. The, um, so he serves at their goodwill. However, there's something called Article 99 in the UN Charter, which gives him, the Secretary General, the duty of calling the attention of the Security Council to situations that threaten the peace and security, in, that threaten peace and security in the world. So he can call a meeting and he can impose an agenda. And Hammarskjöld took this to mean, he took it very broadly, to mean that he had to use every means possible to remain aware of world affairs so that he could recognize in time 
um, threats to peace and security. So that Article 99 became his platform for an activism. Now, the Security Council uh, came to trust him. And uh, he did some very, very difficult diplomatic maneuvers that only he could do. And there may not be time today to talk about what they were. But after a few of those major diplomatic maneuvers, the word at the UN became, let Dog do it. And whenever something really difficult would come up, the first or second or third thought was, let Dog do it. Mm. So he became an, an, an essential um, element in the, for what they were worth, the mechanics of, of, of war prevention, of conflict prevention, and of, of uh, the promotion of, of peace mm. worldwide. Is there, I would be passing up a major opportunity if I didn't ask you if you could uh, just give a favorite example of something that he achieved that is so notable that earned him this reputation of let dog do it. Is there like a specific one that jumps out at you as his biographer? Yes, certainly. It's the Suez crisis and the way it was resolved. <clears throat> so in 1956, the um, Colonel Nasser, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was the who had successfully um, executed a coup for power in Egypt, um, he had set his heart on building what we now know as the Aswan Dam in the Nile River. And it had financing from the, from the West. But when he turned toward the Soviet bloc for armaments, um, the West turned against him and removed the financing for this dam that was a, a major point of prestige for him. So he decided to nationalize the Suez Canal. Mm. Now, the Suez Canal is the lifeline of the, of the British connection with Asian markets and had been for um, 80 or 90 years the uh, not quite that, about 60 years, had been its shortcut to the Indian possessions and others in Asia. So Great Britain took very seriously that Egypt had nationalized the canal. It found another um, a partner in taking things this seriously in France. France was angry at, at Nasser for promoting independence in Algeria. And they thought perhaps supplying armaments to the Algerian rebels. Um, and then Israel became another partner because Israel had been um, deprived of certain access to waterways that would have been very helpful to it. And, and so Israel also had its score to settle with Egypt. During the summer of 1956, Hammerschold had set up and was very actively promoting um, a peaceful solution at UN headquarters. There was something, there was a great deal of negotiating going on. 
Meanwhile, Britain and France in that summer of 1956 were conspiring to attack the Suez Canal, retrieve it, and if possible, to unseat Nasser. So here are two permanent members of the Security Council, Britain and France, conspiring against another member mm. of, the, of, the, uh, of the United Nations, another member nation. So all hell break, broke loose in late October when Britain, France, and Israel launched an attack on, on Egypt and on the Suez Canal specifically. And it was like three days of World War II. They, re, they reinvoked the whole World War II scenario with amphibious landings, parachutists coming down. Um, it looked like World War II, but it lasted for three days. Oh, my goodness. The rest, <laughs> the rest of the world absolutely turned on Britain, France, and Israel. Wow. It was to have two permanent members of the Security Council violating the basic principles of the United Nations was intolerable. Eisenhower hadn't heard about all this. It, was, it had been hidden from him. He was president at the time. And he took steps to ruin both the, um, to ruin the English pound, mm -hmm. to, to have a run on the banks and to, um, to, and essentially to start moving toward bankrupting England, just as a minor measure toward um, resolving this. And so the English gave up, and the issue came to the General Assembly, and a, a really very brilliant um, uh, diplomat, Lester Pearson, who was a Canadian foreign minister, um, chief diplomat to the UN for Canada, later prime minister. The Toronto airport is named for him, mm. Lester Pearson International. He had spoken a little with the English, and they'd figured that if there could be a um, a nonviolent military force, a peacekeeping force interposed between the combatants in this um, three-day war that threatened to continue and could even have become a World War III, um, that that might just work out. So the peacekeeping force was invented. There are now about 180,000 UN peacekeepers around the world, but its origin was this fall 1956 crisis at the Suez. And um, once the idea was launched, it took um, Hammarskjöld three hours to think about it. Would this work? Could this be done? Um, Pearson handed it over to him. Hammarskjöld thought, yes, let's do this. And within 36 hours, Hammarskjöld and his team had boots on the ground. And, and that was the key to resolving this really dreadful crisis of betrayal and treason and the threat of World War III. And Hammarskjöld um, received a lot of credit for that. Mm. Um, Wow. Amazing. That was such a cool example. Um, and I think that I hopefully that that example resonates with the listeners as well um, about the importance of this man who was guided by something in the book that you refer to as as a code. Um, your new book, Politics and Conscience, 
features details on the code of Hammerschold's life and leadership. So what do you mean by code? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it underpins this book in so many ways. Yeah. You know, I, I had to find a concept that was um, that truly fit the way Hammerschild behaved, that, that truly fit his value system, his integrity, which was unshakable. Um, and I ended up with the notion that he followed a code um, that was ancient, it, its basic human values, but that is also constantly evolving as each practitioner of the code lives it in his or her life so that it is expanding from its core principles, which one we could call basic human values. Um, and I gave examples of the code. For example, in the book, I, I quote from George Washington's first inaugural in which he sets forth certain values which are the code. And then I quote Hammerschold, who's setting forth exactly the same values. These two political leaders um, had the same sense of, of, uh, of what's right and what must be. And they didn't flinch away from that. So there's five or six pages about the code um, that I hope um, readers will find very interesting. Excellent. Yeah, and Hammerschold seems to believe deeply in the uh, in the importance of the United Nations as a body. He calls its development logical and natural. And Hammerschold, throughout the book, uh, gets he gives off the impression that he loves the people of the world above all else, as you mentioned earlier, and he seems completely committed to the notion of giving his all for making the world peaceful via the vehicle of the UN, which you elaborated on nicely with your Suez Canal example. So he's also known for dialogue and negotiation. Um, do you have a favorite story of his famous penchant for dialogue that you could share? <laughs> you know, I, I, I've been thinking about that, and <laughs> there are some wonderful um, discursive things. They're not stories, they're things he said, but there is a story. Um, and I'll, I'll read it to you. In, in terms of discursive, you know, in terms of the principles of dialogue, I do want to read one thing from my book that um, that I think you'll find appropriate. Excellent. If, <laughs> assuming I can, assuming I can find it. You can take your time. I can edit. I can do a quick edit in the episode audio. Okay. I'd like you to, because I'm, I'm drawing a blank here and I shouldn't be. Um, I'll come, I'll, I'll just find it. Yeah. Do an edit, Greg. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't, I have a timer running on the screen. So I just wrote down that I'm going to make an edit at 37 minutes in the audio file. All good. good. All good on my end. Good. I'm so pleased. I've learned a lot of the technical prowess of audio editing in the last three years. <laughs> so let me tell one story, but also let me read from my book, page 34, the simplest um, reasoning about the need for dialogue. He said, I do believe that dialogue is badly needed. But dialogue requires quite a few things, objectivity, a willingness to listen, 
and considerable restraint. Those are all human qualities. No one of them is very remarkable, but they are all called for. Now, I want to point out something very Swedish in this. When he says no one of them is very remarkable, that's a, a very Swedish or Scandinavian turn of mind. They, they greatly value modesty in that culture. And so, so he both you know, underplays, no one of them is very remarkable, and then states the truth, which is that they're all called for, and that's quite a big deal. Yeah. So in terms of a negotiation story, in 1959, Mr. Hammerschild um, made a, a kind of world trip, as, which is part of the duty of the Secretary General, is to sort of have his ear to the ground and be speaking with leaders and with people, ordinary people in many parts of the world. And so he stopped off in Sochi, where we had the, the Olympics some mm -hmm. time ago, to visit with Nikita Khrushchev, who was the leader of the Soviet Union at that time, at his, at his resort, Dacha. And they, um, and here's how things went. Um, they had a meal that evening in Sochi. And over dinner, Hammerschel proposed an arch and wonderful toast to honest sinners now on record. <laughs> and Khrushchev and his companions refused the toast. The following day, there was folklore. He and Khrushchev, and remember, Khrushchev is the man, one of the most important and powerful and and uh, hydrogen bomb armed human beings in the world. On the following day, he and Khrushchev shipped out on their own in a rowboat. This fascinated the press and the world, two such unlike men, not an owl and a pussycat, but equally mismatched. Or Cardiff, yeah. So Hammerschild said later that although the boat trip was a bit on the silent side, <laughs> not because of a lack of will, but because there was no place for an interpreter, I shall always remember it with great pleasure. I have carefully noted that next time you will leave it to me to row you. A third time, we may perhaps arrive at rowing with four oars, mm. in other words, together. So this is Hammerschild, in effect, creating an atmosphere with... Um, one of the most uh, powerful and dangerous human beings in the world through this joking next time we'll next time we'll row together yeah and it's like the gradualness of that relationship that builds over time is like the metaphor that he's that he's uh putting out there um that you know we may be rowing differently right now but eventually one day we can row together and we can solve these problems that face everybody i love that that's just like extremely sweet as well it is. Um, and between the two of them, between Khrushchev and Hammerschild, they used periodically to bring up this rowboat incident. Mm. It, it became a kind of symbol for them. I love it. So um, Hammerschild is clearly extremely decent. Uh, he seems very attuned as well to the threat of evil in the post-World War II context in which he lived. 
And he once said, I am forced to adjust my nerves so that they react as exactly and quickly as possible to the many evils and few good things that every day push us forward down the threatened road of mankind, which I found to be really striking because he said many evils and few good. So he seems to see like there's like this imbalance. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate on what this quote meant to him and then maybe also what we can learn from this quote today when threats seem so ever present in our world. I want to go back to the point that he was the first mindful leader political leader in in Western experience. I mean, frankly, I think Abraham Lincoln was too, but but let's stay with our topic. Um, So he was aware of so very much of nuances. If, If mindfulness is good for anything, it's one of the things it's good for is to perceive nuances in the environment, to, to perceive the fine points in the environment. And this Hammarskjöld was extremely good at. <clears throat> About evil itself, there was something of a change over the years of his UN uh, tenure. And I want to illustrate that. In 1955, in his journal, Markings, he wrote a kind of primer, a kind of political primer. And one of the points in that is this one. Only an uncompromising honorableness can reach the bedrock of decency, which you should always expect to find even under deep layers of evil. Mm. That's how we saw it at that time. However, the the last crisis that he had to face, the crisis of independence and mutiny and secession and Cold War conflict in the Congo, which was 1960-61, that taught him something that uh, rather different. So he had a close friend, an artist, Boo Beskov, who was a Swede, And Besko spent some time with him in the summer of 1961, which was Hammarskjöld's last summer. He died in September 61. And Besko writes, I asked, as I used to do on meeting him again, do you still have faith in man? Meaning the individual on his own, own, not in mobs or masses or political parties. Doug had always up to then answered positively, but this time he looked sad and pensive, and he said, no, I never thought it possible, but lately I have come to understand that there are really evil persons, evil right through, only evil. So this is, uh, you know, late in life, after many, many, many bruises and challenges and triumphs, this is the where he came out. Mm. Something that I want to dive into a little bit is his spiritual life. As you know, this is a show that mostly focuses on uh, religions of the world. And you've mentioned several times um, 
Hammerschold's mindfulness, but also his Judeo-Christian upbringing. Can you tell me a little bit more about his spiritual life that sort of like underpin all of his public persona actions? Uh, yes, I can, and I'd be happy to. Now, during his tenure at the UN, he only expressed his religious quest, his religious convictions twice powerfully. The, f- the first time was a um, an interview on radio with Edward R. Morrow, the great American journalist, um, which was a perfectly wonderful credo, an I believe statement, but no one was aware of it. Um, even though it was published as a um, press release by the UN press service, it didn't have much impact. And then quite a few years later, he was approached by a Christian group that wanted to, that very persistently wanted to have a meditation room or a chapel in the UN building itself. And Hammerschild cooperated with that. The, the Christian group donated money. Hammerschild brought on board a very senior architect and the so-called room of quiet in the ground floor of the UN was born. Mm. And in that room of quiet, which opened in 1957, for it, he wrote a statement, a statement of its meaning, of its um, call, really. And I'll read you just a few lines from that. Sure. I want to preface what I'm going to read by saying that Hammerschild did have a very, very rich Christian upbringing um, and did have his classic university years rebellion against religion and, and returned to a Christ, the Christianity of the great medieval mystics, Meister Eckhart, Jan van Ruysbroek, Thomas Arkempis. These were his teachers um, as time went on. Um, and, and then he began expanding his religious knowledge and sympathies until it was really universal. But what I'm going to read you now reflects as much Chinese classic um, religion and Bhagavad Gita, Indian classic religion, as it does Christianity. Perhaps even more so. I love that. I love the Bhagavad Gita so much. A room of quiet, the United Nations meditation room. This is a room devoted to peace and those who are giving their lives for peace. It is a room of quiet where only thoughts should speak. We all have within us a center of stillness surrounded by silence. This house dedicated to work and debate in the service of peace should have one room dedicated to silence in the outward sense and stillness in the inner sense. There is an ancient saying that the sense of a vessel is not in its shell, but in the void. So it is with this room. It is for those who come here to fill the void with what they find in their center of stillness. So this is Mr. Hammerschold. This is his voice. Um, He was a deeply religious man 
and a questing man. Religion for him was was not um, a Sunday affair. It was it was um, a way of life with internal and external uh, <clears throat> obligations. I want to find you now. You know, those of us who who do follow a way, most of us, I'm speaking for myself, know ourselves to be just remarkably awkward. Mm. The way is beautiful. Whatever your way is, it's beautiful. And in truth, one is not oneself all that beautiful. And so it's perfectly amazing. And yet one loves the way. So it's perfectly amazing to find that Hammerschold did reach or was visited by mystical experiences that were of the highest caliber. Um, and I'm looking for one such passage. We were just speaking about stillness. In 1956, actually, a year or so before he wrote that statement for the Room of Quiet at the UN, he was out in Beirut and he was trying Beirut, Lebanon, and he was trying to um, bring some order there that had begun to uh, deteriorate among the different um, nations in that region. And he wrote himself a note as follows in his journal. Understand through the stillness. Act out of the stillness. Prevail in the stillness. Can you imagine a more... Um, a, a, a tighter fit between his internal spirituality and his action in the world. One of his last entries, May 21st, 1961, in the journal, um, has a strangely valedictory quality. He knew that the Congo was a killing field. He knew that he might well lose his life there, as others had in, in recent months. So this May 21st um, note to himself does have the, this valedictory quality. I don't know who or what put the question. I don't know when it was put. I don't even remember answering. But at some moment I did answer yes to someone or something. And from that hour, I was certain that existence is meaningful and that therefore my life in self-surrender had a goal. From that moment, I have known what it means not to look back and to take no thought for the morrow. It goes on from there. This is Hammerschel. This was a great soul and we will do well to recognize him um, and give him the place he, he truly merits. 
Well, in a moment ago, you just mentioned the Congo, and he died in the Congo under very suspicious circumstances. It's been the subject of actually a 2019 documentary that I saw on Hulu yesterday, interestingly. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about the theories of his death that are out there in the world? He died in an air crash mid-September 1961. There were three inquiries at the time as to the circumstances surrounding this air crash, which took his life and the life of 15 companions, all UN people. Um, And those three inquiries, the first one was sort of technical, uh, led by the um, Air Transport Association or something like that. The second was led by a white supremacist court of inquiry in what was then northern Rhodesia, now Zambia, long since a free country. And that white supremacist court of inquiry um, gathered a lot of information and sorted through it as to which information suited them and which should be just deep-sixed, forgotten. And so they came up with the idea that the um, air crash was due to pilot error. And they completely ignored other evidence provided by eyewitnesses, many of whom were black. And that was the first strike against them. And the last strike, in a way. Um, And then there was a third inquiry by the UN in 1962 which over-relied on, the, on this white supremacist court of inquiry so that while they opened the possibility, they left it open, the possibility that the air crash was um, caused by um, sabotage, was the term they used. There was no evidence for that. There was also no evidence against it. Um, and that's where the matter lay, mm-hmm. essentially for decades. And um, a very brilliant English scholar, Susan Williams, in 2011, published a book called Who Killed Hammerschold? And she had gone back into all of the um, neglected records and discovered that, um, that there was, that it was in fact less than likely that it was pilot error that caused this air crash in the middle of the night, that eyewitnesses on the ground saw another plane in pursuit, saw a flash of light passing from the smaller plane in pursuit to the larger plane, saw a flash of light, an explosion in the sky. Um, And there were numbers of witnesses to that effect, all of whose testimony was disregarded though nonetheless records were kept. So the first theory is, to my mind, not a theory at all, it's factual, is that there was a conspiracy to shoot down his plane. Um, Second theory is that a South African supremacist group had, so to speak, turned its face against Mr. Hammerschold because he was one of the great decolonizers 
in the world of the 1950s and early 60s. He really was the champion of of uh, independent, majority-ruled countries, no, no matter what the consequences. And the South Africans very well knew what the consequences would be. So they were maintaining apartheid and uh, a kind of maverick group within South Africa may have sabotaged Mr. Hemmerschel's aircraft. Mm. It's a theory. It seems less likely to me than the pursuit by a smaller aircraft. Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, so who killed Hammerschel? We don't know yet. Um, there are likely... Um, w- one very good book by a friend of mine... Um, about this whole matter um, centered it down on one ex-Nazi pilot flying one type of airplane from one nearby airfield um, armed in one specific way. He, He may or may not be right. I simply don't know. What is true is that In the Congo, there were financial and political interests that found Doug Hammarskjöld inconvenient. Um, When will the truth be known ever? I assume that that the United States in its classified files has recordings of air traffic control um, exchanges on that on the night of the fatal crash. I believe that the UK may have similar kind of information. Both US and UK have not been fully forthcoming. Um, in response to the inquiry that the UN still has underway, um, that inquiry was inspired by Susan Williams' book. That was 2011, here it is 2020. We still don't know. Some countries, including our own, are appear to be withholding crucial information. Um, time will tell. Interesting. Well, I hope the answers are able to be to come out someday. Um, so, Roger, one of the things that seems to have happened in the wake of your biography of Hammerschold and this book is that you seem to have made some interesting friends because you dedicate the book to somebody named Dr. Ariane Sabay. Am I saying her name correctly? Yes. Tell me a little bit about the opportunities that you have had uh, to, you know, be involved in educating the world about Hammerschold in the wake of your books. I wish they were broader, but they've, they've not been, um, they've been um, very challenging. Ariane Sabay was for years the um, creator and manager of a UN educational program. And she and her colleagues decided that I should give talks on Hammerschold in various parts of the world when they were holding uh, five-day sessions. Now, I want to say something about the students who would come to these five-day sessions. They would come from all over the region. We would have them these meetings in New York, and they would come from just everywhere. Um, we'd have one in, in South Africa, and they'd come from everywhere in, in, in the, on the African continent. Um, have them in Geneva. They came from all over Europe and the Middle East. And th- what makes me so happy 
when I meet with UN groups of that kind, um, is that they are all colors. They are from all every different country you can imagine. Um, they call each other colleague. That word colleague is the is the skeleton key mm. that opens all the doors among these people. Um, there's it's it's not even for me it's a vision of a future in which the races meet and work together um, without any sense that you are different or I am different. It's it's the goal that's shared. And from that I have such a celebratory feeling when when I meet an African and a Japanese and a yeah. an Arab and we all are around a table talking about the same thing with the same sincerity, the same care. So for me, that's what the UN experience has been. Um, and um, I'm looking forward to giving more of those more of those talks. I also had the fun of giving some other talks, for example, on UN Day, which is October 24th um, each year. Two years ago, I gave a talk at the Nobel Peace Center mm. on Doug Hammarskjöld as a practitioner of peace. And that's in Oslo. And that was, you know, what a great place to give a talk on Hammarskjöld. And then a group of Irish religious who were attracted, as they should be, to Hammarskjöld's private journal and to his religious quest, invited me to Dublin to give a talk to their group. And I was I was living in Paris at the time, and I was more than happy to take that flight and and speak with um, a group of Irish religious. Uh, so so yeah, I become an educator about Hammarskjöld, and I try to keep. I more than try, I insist on keeping my vision of his person and achievements fresh. Mm. Because that's the only way I can help people to understand him is if I'm still interested. <coughs> well, that is absolutely that is wonderful. wonderful. Um, Roger, I'm super grateful to you for your time and this hour that you've spent with me to talk about uh, Hammerschuld, A Life, your biography that you wrote, but also your brand new um, volume, Politics and Conscience, Dag Hammerschuld on the Art of Ethical Leadership from Shambhala Publications. It is absolutely wonderful to have you as a return guest on the show to talk about your your interests and your areas of expertise um, I value our conversations on this show a lot, and I'm really glad that you were um, excited to come back and uh, spend some time with me today. Hey, Greg, I will be more than pleased to come back yet again because Hammerschild had a successor, Václav Havel, and I'm going to be writing a handbook of Havel's thought, and you and I should talk about that when the time comes. Absolutely. Yes. Well, um, I'm going to be putting links to the show note to the to purchase the book in the show notes. So if you're listening out there to this podcast episode, you can find the direct links to check out um, Dr. Roger Lipsy's new book, Politics and Conscience, out now from Shambhala. Thank you so much for being here today. My great pleasure. Thank you. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. 
Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybing. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.